Okay, I'd like to uh, continue and explain the third exercise, or I don't know, really set of exercises, really, the third set of exercises, or exercise, depending on how we're conceiving of them. Um, but I also want to say a few more general things, and then start, start with the general things, and uh, take our time and not rush, and then introduce the third one, and... Uh, and say a little bit more about the why of all this. So these um, movement, gesture, and voice exercises, the, these instructions, this material, is in addition uh, to be added to what is already there in previous talks that we've recorded over the last years. Um, and I tried to give a little list, but I know there are some I'm forgetting. In fact, I remember sitting right here, uh, not on a retreat, recording something, offering some instructions or some possibility for meditation um, around ensouling the voice, but I cannot for the life of me recollect where that is. Um, so there may be other material as well, but anyway, um, it's all to be taken together, put together as a body of material, um, a kind of strand within the soul-making dharma, within the practices. Some of what we'll say in this set of talks um, will repeat what's uh, some of what's there, and some stuff will be there that's not here. Uh, in other words, I said other stuff there that I'm not going to repeat here, and vice versa, there'll be new stuff here that wasn't said there. I'm just curious, actually. I wonder, um, or I am wondering, how many people who have listened to or even took part in uh, those exercises, I can't remember which retreat it was, it might have been Foundations of a Soul Making, no, I can't remember, but the talks uh, are up on Dharma Seed called Voice, Movement and the Possibilities of Soul, I think, and I think there's two parts. I wonder how many people, um, of everyone who's um, perhaps listened to those talks, how many actually picked up uh, those exercises and practiced them, uh, repeated them in practice? Or how many even listened and practiced as opposed to just listened? But really, how many actually picked it up, picked those exercises up and pursued it and developed it as a practice? So I'm actually genuinely curious about that. I'm also generally curious that if not, in other words, if you perhaps heard those talks or had a little go with it, and then you didn't pursue it, why not? Um, and so I'm genuinely curious about that, and I'm going to suggest that it would be good for all of us to be genuinely curious if that's the case. Uh, why not? I think that's probably an interesting question, and I really mean it as a question, not as a, you know, someone says, why not? Why didn't you do that? And it just becomes a self-judgment thing. Oh yes, it's another thing that I failed at, or didn't do well, or whatever, and neglected, or whatever it is. But actually it's an interesting question. If I, if, if I didn't, if you didn't, wh why not? Um, it's an interesting question insofar as it might sh shed light uh, on on those areas and issues we touched on yesterday, inertia. Like how much of not taking up those practices and not kind of galvanizing oneself to do what's unfamiliar 
And actually what does take a bit of energy and a bit of oomph and a bit of now I really have to do this and it's it's different than sitting there quietly with the legs crossed in the usual meditation posture or on a chair or whatever it is and doing my usual practice so it's an interesting question if if one didn't the why not becomes an interesting question insofar as it might illuminate those areas and issues we talk about inertia and also the question of uh, discriminating significance or failing to discriminate discern significance and these two things we talked about yesterday maybe I didn't because of inertias of different kinds in my practice in my relationship with practice what and how I practice and all that and the form of practice and how that can get kind of um, just rigidified kind of set and practice is something you don't move much in or it doesn't make much noise it's not loud like that it's certainly not um they were quite uh wild but sort of rambunctious you know some of what was what was there and so was it inertia partly or was it and um, this just didn't i just didn't discern it didn't occur to me as something i didn't grasp it as something significant there were, as I mentioned yesterday, lots of other reasons why not to do with how, how, how I put the teaching out and not, not taking enough time and rushing through things, and etc. But insofar as it sheds light on those two areas, I mean, also pedagogically, I think uh, it's interesting as we go forward, you know, to take more time and really earmark something. Okay, this is a thing now, this is a practice, and here we put a put a ring fence around it and make it a thing and make people do it. So pedagogically it's also an interesting question and something to bear in mind. But as far as it sheds light, as I said, on, on the issues, the areas of inertia and the capacity uh, to discern the significance of something that we read or hear, it becomes a very interesting question. Why didn't I pick that up and pursue it and develop it and um, repeat it and practice it? So, I'll leave that with you. Um, We introduced yesterday these two first exercises, just called them exercise one and two, and uh, just to repeat a little bit, uh, again, a little too brief, why, some of the why for those two exercises has to do with, well, firstly, developing sensitivity. Again, how much sensitivity and the development of sensitivities uh, is part of uh, so so much an integral part of a necessary part of soul making goma practice practices they so depend on sensitivity and sensitivity in this case uh, to 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 movement to gesture to voice sensitivity to energy body sensitivity to space to sound so all that was in exercises one and two this possibility of developing sensitivity and how important that is in soul making down prayers increasing the scope or the area uh, in which we are sensitive and to which we are sensitive and the range of aspects of being and, and expression to which we are sensitive and increasing the sensitivity as well and the second reason why um, has to do with uh, is it possible when I, I I think it is very possible that 
we can live as human beings in this culture of ours, this complex culture of ours, a complex sense of self, complex social dynamics, etc. Complex psychologies. And our energy can, and our voice uh, can be held in, our body can be held in, uh, held back habitually, often unconsciously and often not even through a conscious choice. We're holding, holding ourselves back, holding ourselves in as, as a habitual holding. And that holding back of our energy and our voice, holding back of our, our bodily expression as well, is, is actually uh, a holding back of our libido, of our life energy, of our life force, and also of our eros. In the, again, the larger, in the fuller, richer sense of that word eros and a holding back of our soul. And this, I think, is very, very common in our culture, and it may be common, I'm going to say more about this as we go on, it may be especially common in certain ways in some Dharma cultures. So there's the development, why, why exercises one to the development of sensitivity in certain areas, and the, just the, the increase of sensitivity, both in, what would you say, uh, refinement and depth, but also in scope, and also this question is uh, this question of um, is there a habitual holding back or holding in of my energy of my voice through my body, which is actually a holding back of my libido and my soul? Do I have a choice in that? Am I even conscious of that? It's very important, I think, very, very important. We'll elaborate on this. I'll elaborate as we go forward. And we talked about, you know, we use this language of preliminaries and exercises. And just as it's probably obvious, but um, it, what we, if we call those exercises and the other exercises we'll give um, today and hopefully in the coming days, if we call them preliminaries, um, they're also already presupposing other preliminaries, for example, mindfulness, um, some uh, degree of energy body awareness. So there are also preliminaries that are resting, resting on other preliminaries, you could say. So that's, excuse me, probably obvious. But also, um, just a little bit, if you've been listening to the teachings over the last while, um, even just over the last couple of years, let's say, uh, you can see that some of what we might call preliminaries and what we might ask for as preliminaries from a practitioner as prerequisites can then become insold. This is another thing we talked about the difference between foundation and root, and a root as being something that can actually grow. A foundation is something that's fixed. So this what is a kind of prerequisite or preliminary can then become an ensouled area and grow and be developed to other levels that we had never, never even anticipated or intuited or dreamt of. So this is very clear, for example, if we, if we take two areas that we can consider as preliminaries, the energy body, um, and we've seen, I was like, okay, energy body is this kind of thing, awareness, but uh, this kind of awareness, this kind of sense of the body, okay, people get a hang of that. 
But after a while, then we talked about the energy, the imaginal energy body, that that very sense of the energy body can become imaginal and can be related to as imaginal image. So it's not just um, a sort of uh, kind of basic instrument. It becomes uh, itself an erotic imaginal object. It, be- it becomes ensouled, it becomes alive in soul, its depth, its ra- the range of its possibility, what it can be, how it can manifest, how we can feel it, the whole relationship with it becomes uh, erotic and imaginal. And the whole thing just um, kind of balloons out exponentially to, to, to include other possibilities. So that would be one example of a preliminary or prerequisite that then becomes ensouled and then just completely um, opens out in actually infinitely to other possibilities. A second example would be sila, ethics. Again, we, we rest our teaching as Dharma teachings, a set of Dharma teachings within the Dharma teachings of sila, of ethics, in our case, the five precepts that we receive from the Theravada Buddhist tradition, taking those very seriously as a basis. And as practice develops, and I've uh, outlined in two sets of talks now, sila and soul and the image of ethics, as practice develops and the soul-making dynamics starts involving um, ethics in the sense it starts... Uh, Ethics itself becomes, values and virtues become erotic imaginal objects, and the whole domain of sila becomes erotically alive and alive to the soul and for the soul. Then that whole preliminary basis of the five precepts again just balloons out in complexity and depth and dimensionality and range and demand and beauty. All of that. So those would be two examples of areas where preliminary becomes ensouled, and then it becomes something that's, uh, you know, potentially the opposite of preliminary, super advanced, you know. Um, but the same could be said of something like dana or even mindfulness. But lots of lots of possibilities there in relation to this idea of preliminaries. And again, to touch on this thread, I'll keep coming back to this: the why of all this repeat something I think I said yesterday. So why preliminaries? Why these exercises, these kinds of exercises? Why even think in terms of exercises or preliminaries? So, as I said, we can just hope that the soul-making dynamic, we know, we've heard, or we've even had experience of the soul-making dynamic, what it does is it will expand things. It will expand its range. It will include more and more. And it will expand something uh, that it's kind of got in its in its vortex, in its dynamics, some area or aspect of our being, our life. It um, expands that area. We expand with it. Uh, our understanding and our experience of that area or aspect of being expands with it or shatters in the breaking of the vessels and then has to be built in a larger way, a deeper, more fuller, far-reaching way. 
So it might be that we can just hope that the soul making, that if we're practicing soul making, we like it, practicing, and we can just hope that the soul making dynamic will expand, will get hold in, in its expansion, or in the breaking of vessels that happens uh, occasionally from time to time. Sometimes it's just a stretch, sometimes it's actually a shattering. Um, in that whole process, over time, that eventually it will just, uh, you know, by itself come to involve and include and insole movement, gesture, voice. We could just hope that. That's because that's what soul making dynamic does. However, if those areas, uh, movement, gesture, and voice, or some, um, let's say, some directions and possibilities within movement, gesture and voice are if the blocks there that we have are really entrenched if they're entrenched enough then the power of expansion of the soul making dynamic propelled by Eros etc. and the Eros Psychologos dynamic um, if, if the blocks are more entrenched and effectively more powerful than the soul making dynamic at that point it won't it won't insole those areas or those those possibilities within those areas. So sometimes it does. The eros and the soul making that just does its thing and it overcomes or it stretches those walls, those blocks. We've talked about this, whether they're blocks of eros or psyche or logos or whatever it is. And sometimes it will come up against them and it won't be strong enough. The blocks are too entrenched. And so those areas will not be included in the soul-making dynamic. They won't be in soul. Certain things won't open up as possibilities. It will stop there. The walls are, are not moving. The limitations stay where they are. Now, I don't know. Can we know in advance, with respect to any aspect of our being or area of our life, whether whatever blocks we have there, which are often unconscious anyway, whether they will be weaker or stronger than the soul-making, uh, the push of the soul-making dynamic, the fermentation, the force of fermentation of the soul-making dynamic as it moves into those areas, as it, as it reaches those areas and those aspects of our being and our life. I don't know, how would we know that in advance? It may, of course, it may well be in some many cases that it does um, expand those limits, push open those walls, create, discover, open new possibilities, new roads for soul, new territories and landscapes. But there will be uh, blocks and walls and limits that soul, in its dynamic, in its process, which it encounters, that it does not overcome. It stops there. And those areas remain out of reach, not open. No entry. The road there is, is, uh, is not open. What does it mean uh, for, for example, for movement, gesture, voice to be ensouled? this term. What does it mean? What are we meaning, at least, when we say uh, movement, gesture, voice can become ensouled? Well, I think for right now it means two main things, at least. It means at least these two things. 
and they're, they're both quite big. So the first is, it means that if the soul wants to express and communicate um, through or using these aspects of our being, movement, gesture, voice, it can. They are available within those domains of movement, gesture, voice. The, there are roads that are open. Travel is possible. Expansion is possible. So if it means that to be in soul, movement, gesture, voice, to be in soul means that if that soul wants to express or communicate um, using or through those aspects of our being, it can, because they are, they are there, they are available and they are open. And, you know, the degree of possible development there is, is infinite. Again, if we go back to the, the, the sort of example, the analogy of music, you know, it's just completely open-ended how, to what degree that those arts uh, can be developed. We talk about the art of movement, say, dance, or a gesture, or a voice, you know, and how the art of the soul uh, using those uh, media, movement, gesture, voice, as, as uh, expression. The, the, there's no limit to the depth and height of the art that is possible there, the arts that are possible there. It's just, you know, I mean, staggering what some people are able to do. And not just in, certainly in terms of technique, etc., but, but then if you think about it in terms of the depth and the height of soul and the breadth of soul that can be coupled with that technique to... Um, to, to, to bring that sort of you know, really deep soul power that comes through in uh, really great art. So certainly that, but also, um, probably for most of us, what we're really talking about is just as it's available, just as part of the soul manifesting uh, one, some of the ways the soul manifests and wants to manifest in everyday life. In living our lives soulfully, or doing our soul duties, so to speak. So, if it wants to express and communicate um, through and using those aspects of being, if soul wants that, it can. And that may mean developing a really, you know, the art of movement, gesture, voice to some degree maybe even to an extraordinary degree. But um, probably for most of us, it means just it can in life, in, in the ordinary, m- m- the ordinary manifesting of soul in life. There's not something um, that bars those uh, directions and, and domains from being in soul, from soul, but bars soul from flowing through and expressing and communicating in and through and with those those uh, aspects of our being. So that's one thing that it means uh, for, for movement, gesture, voice to be in soul. A second thing that it means is that um, the movement, gesture, and voice of oneself or of another 
in their everyday, ordinary usages. Just the voice speaking, or just having a conversation, or um, exclaiming something, or the hand moving as it speaks, or whatever it is. Those ordinary usages of movement, of gesture, of voice, can be sensed with soul. Can be sensed, therefore, as angelic, as refracting uh, the angel, the daemon. They are uh, sensed uh, as dimensional, unfathomable, as divine in origin, as echoing the eternal. So for movement, gesture, voice to be in soul, it means these two main things. And I think they're both really, really important if we talk about um, uh, opening our lives to soul-making, or our lives being open to soul. And I shared about um, uh, my what I called my grief um, in relation to particular relation that one one sort of area around uh, jazz guitar, improvising jazz guitar, and particularly the, the, the technique, really. Um, my grief. A, a better word might be regret. I mean, there is there's definitely grief there, but there's also a kind of regret. I think you know, people might ask, "Oh, you know, you're going to die soon, and is there anything you regret?" Well, that's that's what I said. Well, there's one thing. There's just one thing, and it's that. Why do why 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 the word regret? Because, you know, um, even though I did go to music school and all that and conservatory, blah blah blah, it's like. I, you actually end up having to figure out a lot of stuff on your own, especially if you're you know, doing jazz. You have to find your own ways to do things and your own kind of avenues that you're interested in and develop them. And So I, there was plenty of uh, things, even within, within jazz, that I figured out on my own, so to speak, on my own. You're never on your own completely with anything, but um, certainly picking up different pieces here and there, following my intuition, following my eros, essentially and playing, experimenting, creating, discovering. Plenty of things I figured out on my own. And looking back, of course, I could have chosen technique in the sense that I was talking about it the other day, this particular kind of areas of technique. I could have chosen that as something to focus on, say, okay, let me, let me just really try and get figure this out and, and get really interested in it. But actually, I, I effectively chose other areas instead other areas of music, other areas of guitar playing, in fact, as well. And I developed them. And, you know, that was wonderful and very fruitful and beautiful. But I could have chosen technique. So it's actually a kind of regret. I have a... Yes, I wasn't taught it, because, as I said, there wasn't the pedagogy there at that time. But I could have... Uh, I could have just kept bashing away until... And, and you know, in this kind of dogged way that... that uh, one has if one really wants something. But I didn't. I chose other things instead. So there's regret. There's some responsibility that falls on me. So, in a way, offering these particular teachings um, to, to just... Uh, these, these teachings now, offering them so that there's the possibility that you can practice and practice so in a way that you don't end up regretting that you don't end up regretting uh, not 
supporting yourself fully or allowing yourself or enabling yourself fully to move in the direction or be moved in the direction of what you want with respect to soul-making dharma. And also what you want with respect to soul in life, or you know, the expression and the living of soul in life, your soul in your life. We must call that soul making dharma. It's not something separate. So offering these part of the why, so that that's why I shared the story of that grief and regret. It's like yeah, because sometimes there are things that are really important to our soul. And it's only the fact that we didn't take care of some really basic nuts and bolts that we actually were not able then to reap the benefit and play in the fields of the territories that we would have loved to. So this offering is so that you have that choice and you have a conscious choice. Uh, You could practice so you don't regret. We said, uh, one of the things we said yesterday was, you know, these are small pieces, these exercises, this emphasis on movement, gesture, voice, and the exercises will do this. They're, they're kind of small, little, small pieces, but they're indispensable, both. So they're not super central, super big deal, but they're indispensable, both. So there's a kind of, not contradictory, but two two sides of, of uh, that statement, obviously. And where does it, uh, how do you pick it up? What does it, what does hearing something like that do to your relationship and attitude to this whole notion of preliminaries and exercises and these particular ones uh, that, we're, that we're working through? So I probably want to avoid two extremes here. So they're small pieces, therefore one hears, nah, it's not important, and one maybe never bothers to do these exercises. Or, well, okay, I do them once or twice. That would be one extreme, and I think it would be probably a mistake for most people. Maybe not for everyone, but for most people. Not for everyone. The other extreme that you want to avoid is then you hear this, okay, small people, but they're indispensable, and therefore I drop everything else, and I just spend hours every day um, doing these exercises, and I vow to do no other practices until I've completed three years of just these exercises every day or whatever it is. Um, so, as usual, a little, a little bit of middle way can go a long way. Um, bringing some intelligence here, knowing one's patterns, recognizing one's the kinds of inertia one typically uh, gets entrenched in, falls into, all that's really important. As usual, it's really about discernment and intelligence and applying that to one's practice. And just a small but important practical thing um, that I didn't say yesterday, um, but if anything in these exercises, um, if for any you know, reasons, uh, uh, physical reasons or reasons of your health, um, if any part of an exercise or any exercise feels like mm, that wouldn't be good for my body or that's just not possible for my body or it would be dangerous or something, um, which is the case for me at this point, um, for one or two of these things, um, just don't do it or adapt it. Find, get, Understand 
discern what the kernel of it, what the point is, and adapt it. Adapt it to your body, uh, your body's condition right now, and the needs and uh, capabilities of your body right now. Okay. Okay, so let's move on and introduce example uh, exercise three. Uh, okay. Now again, there's 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 five exercises within this. So again, whether it's actually an exercise three or exercise series three, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But there's five within them. I'll go through them. But again, each of these five could be done um, physically. In other words, that it's concretized into an actual m- movement and, and vocalization or whatever. Uh, movements and vocalizations could be done concretely, physically, or it can be done just in with the energy body, so to speak, in the sense of the energy body in in the imagination only, and there's uh, nothing physical or audible, perceptible there. So each of the five can be done in in either or both of those ways, and I would encourage exploring both. Really, really encourage exploring both both the concrete, physical, and the um, not concretized, not physicalized, just the energy body, just the um, image sense. So I can give these sort of little nicknames, these five. I'm not sure I'm such a fan of the nicknames I've just come up with um, very hastily, but um, it doesn't really matter. You could just go by numbers, or you can make your own nickname. The first one of the five, uh, I've just called something like thunderclap or thunder and lightning. Okay, but don't take that, certainly don't take it too literally and uh, don't take it too narrowly either. What I mean by this exercise, what I want to get at by this exercise, and I think this one is really, really important, is actually this one more than any other um, of all the exercises that I'm offering that kind of was the start of this idea that something needs to be offered, it would be a good idea to offer something. This one I think is very important. What I mean is, the object is, um, an emphatic, uh, brief or or sudden gesture or movement, maybe with a vocalisation, but the whole thing is maybe two seconds, roughly, you know, obviously. So something but very emphatic and relatively short. And if there's a vocalization, it's also relatively short. But within that, emphatic means there's force in it. There's power in it. There's energy and strength in it. And there is, soul is coming through. In this case, I mean soul in a slightly more limited sense, um, or rather as a minimum in a limited sense. It may come through in a, it's kind of, you know, fully imaginal sense, etc. But I don't necessarily mean that at the start. It's just an exercise. Um, I mean soul coming through, soul as the the spirit, the life force, the the being, the person, the energy. And really it's coming through in a consolidation, in, in a gesture, in a movement, in a vocalization that consolidates, coheres, coalesces um, mind, intention, soul, and body in and through body movement, gesture, or voice. 
So something like just a stamp of the foot and a and and maybe some kind of gesture with the arms or the fists, um, or just a gesture with the arms, or just stamping the foot, feet, or whatever, or a kick, or a step, or a karate chop, or something like that. Okay, so the movement itself, anyone can do the movement. You know, if you uh, well, some of us can't do these kinds of movement at this point, but um, uh, but most most uh, people without physical impar- uh, difficulty struggles um, can do something like that movement. What's much harder is to have that sense of real coming together, coherence, congruence, consolidation, coalescence, uh, integration in that brief, whatever it is, two seconds. The integration of mind, intention, body, person, in and through the body, movement, gesture, and voice. Yeah. And again, the vocalization could be anything. It could be a ha, or a, or a, or a longer, slightly longer tone, or it, does, it really doesn't matter. And again, it could be, um, uh, we talked about, could be, uh, spontaneous, you don't actually know what you're going to do, you just feel the impulse and let that coalesce and, and let it come out, or it could be it's a precise move, you've rehearsed it and you know exactly what it looks like and what it's going to sound like and you do that. This will apply, those two alternatives will apply to all of these five examples. Okay, so it would be easier if you could see me and I could demonstrate, even though I'm very limited in what I could do physically right now, but um, I hope you can get the sense of this. You know, when someone is doing kung fu or karate, in a way that's what they're doing. They chop bricks or whatever it is, or they make a, a move. That's part of their training, is to bring everything together, mind, intention, soul, and body like that. And it's surprisingly rare And in some circles, it's even more rare than it might be in other circles. So, can I do this? Can I train in doing that? And as I said, um, I think, or or for me, this this is the most important one, even, perhaps, of everything that I'm going to offer. And there's reasons for me saying that. I'll come back to that. But uh, it may be you just think, well... (laughs) I don't know, that doesn't sound very interesting at all. Um, just notice your, your, your response. Um, after that, after you've done your gesture, if this was on retreat, if we were doing this on retreat, or if this was a retreat setting and I was introducing this, and I would say, okay, the way we're going to do this is, let's say we have this whole week, and whatever, if it's a week retreat, and every day you're going to come into an interview room um, with me, and I'm going to sit there, and you're going to do this thunderclap or thunder and lightning movement gesture vocalization thing. And so you just come in, for, prepare yourself, and then, and then you do it. And then in front of me, and I'm watching you. And then after, after you do it, you assess it. Maybe you say, oh, yeah, felt like I wasn't quite in my feet there or I could feel I was holding back a little in my voice, or mm, I could feel like the energy was really coming through, but it was sort of, it was more 
I guess, hysterical than coherent. It was a bit sort of, uh, it wasn't really uh, congruent like that. And then after you assess, I assess. I assess you. Okay, I'll explain why. This might sound like in our culture, this is a, in our Dharma culture, this would be a very odd thing. A kind of little exam where you have to do something in front of the teacher and then um, they sort of assess you. So I'll explain um, why that would even be part of it in a retreat setting. Of course, if you're not in a retreat setting, then either you have to just do it on your own and you assess, or you could do it with a Dharma friend, etc. Um, but I think even the ability to really read these things in another person and sense them is also quite rare and something that uh, needs developing and probably will only develop again through practice um, for most people will probably only develop through practice and through doing it oneself and then some people will develop the ability to sort of get a sense with other people so we can be easily misled in these areas, very easily misled, and that's something I'll, be, I'll come back to later. So again, if we were on a retreat setting and I was introducing this and say that, okay, come once a day, we're going to do you're going to do this thing. It will be a thread through your retreat, and you can practice these exercises or that exercises on your own um, as much as you want in motionless, silent meditation, so just with the energy body and with the with the imaginal sense the imaginative sense. Um, and you can also practice, for example, if we were a guy house, you can go out onto the grounds and just practice that, you know, as, as much as you want. And then once a day, you'd come and do this thing. Okay. So I'll come back to what that, what that, what's that assessment bit about. I'll come back to that. Anyway, that's number one. Okay, so I hope I've conveyed something there of that. It'd be easier to just see me but anyway, we're recording this, so... Okay, that's the first one. The second uh, thread of this exercise, number three, is the second part is... And again, I'm not sure about the uh, the name, but something like, call it, Born Aloft by Angels. Okay? So here, not two seconds, maybe you've got a maximum of two minutes. You don't have to use all that time. A maximum of two minutes. I mean, certainly more than... 20 or 30 seconds, but somewhere between, let's say, 30 seconds and 2 minutes. And you let your body, or you express with your body, the image of being born aloft by angels. So somehow these beings uh, who have no weight um, are bearing you aloft, are holding up your body on these gossamer threads of love and light, making your body buoyant. Uh, floating, light, weightless. And your body in that can give itself to being held by the angels and moved by these angels. And the body, in giving itself, can uh, become fluid. Your body becomes fluid in that. In this sort of... Almost the way way that um, sometimes when when they celebrate a party or something, you can lift someone up and if there's enough people you can pass them along or in a big crowd or at a concert you know pass people along um, hand to hand a big crowd passes a person along something like that but much more um, delicate and uh, almost ethereal 
So the body becomes fluid in uh, surrendering uh, oneself to that being held and being moved. So that another part of it is the surrendering oneself, surrendering one's energy body and body and, and heart as much as possible and soul. So probably in this no vocal, it's just um, moving your body in a way that expresses expresses that as much as possible. And then again, if we were on retreat, you and I might uh, take turns in assessing that. Okay. Third part of this exercise, or the third exercise in this series of exercises. Um, is what we might call the raging beast. Okay, so I don't know what even comes up in your mind right now as a reaction when you hear raging beast. Of course, there are many types of beast. You know, some have tails, some have horns, some have fangs, some have teeth, some have tongues, all kinds of stuff, you know. Many kinds of beasts. So we're not going to put a limit on that. It's just... A raging beast or the raging beast. Maybe it's a ravenous beast. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just raging. Careful how you hear this. Do you hear raging beast and then hear evil, for instance, or ill will? I certainly, to me, it doesn't imply that. So I want to be very clear about this. It does not imply evil necessarily at all uh, or ill will. But again, somewhere uh, between 30 seconds and 2 minutes, it might be that within that 30 seconds and 2 minutes, there are, um, it may be that there are kind of bursts. So you have a little burst of letting this thing come through your body or uh, feeling into your body and the movement and gesture and, and uh, vocalization that might come with that. And then that goes a little bit, you let it go and you get gather the intention, gather the chitta, gather the energy body awareness and then do it again. Another burst of, you know, up to 15 seconds, whatever it is. This is all quite loose. Or it may be just two minutes straight, you're just really in this thing. Whatever. Again, vocalization is possible, but not necessary. So maybe sometimes you do it and there's vocals that come with it, sometimes not. Maybe try both ways. And again, given, depending on the context, we would um, both of us kind of take turns in, in assessing that. Getting more discerning, discriminating about what's what's working there, what's, what's blocked, what's being included, uh, what the issues are, what the areas of the body or ranges that are opening or, or, or not, etc., fourth one is something we might call something like the immovable protector or the immovable guardian maybe maybe they're human maybe they're inhuman maybe they're demonic maybe they're angelic maybe they're animal maybe they're some kind of mythic creature it doesn't really matter the immovable protector or guardian what are they protecting maybe they're protecting the earth Maybe they're protecting um, in relation to uh, some kind of social injustice or racial injustice or something or other. 
and that might change from time to time. The, 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 what's core here is the immovable protector or an immovable guardian. And again, sort of maximum of two minutes. Maybe possible that within those two minutes it's sort of broken up into little bursts of expression, of movement, gesture, um, voice. Um, perhaps, you know, up to 15 seconds, then kind of gathering, stopping, regrouping, another burst, etc. It may be possible, and even in the name, the immovable, the immovable protective, it may be possible there's very little movement. But in the stance, in the gesture, in the feel of the energy body, the being, the mind, the soul, uh, that, that that image of an immovable protected guardian is uh, gathered and expressed and manifest. So maybe a lot of movement, it may be a little movement, it may be very little movement, or even no movement, but it's in the gesture. It's in the stance, it's in the posture, it's in the feel of the energy body, or it may be in the voice. And again, if we were in a certain context, we would uh, do this double assessment thing, or assessing twice. Okay, so that's the fourth one. The fifth one, I'm just going to call it the serpent. The serpent but I'm not going to say anything about it. What does it mean, the serpent? What might it mean? What's the range of possibility that it might mean? The serpent. Again, um, maybe up to two minutes, and may include vocal, maybe not, don't know, but the serpent. couple of deliberate reasons I'm not saying anything in terms of what that might be. I'm just going to say that. So, five parts, each possible, both concretized uh, and physical, or just in the energy body, just in the um, imaginal sense, image sense, imaginative sense, Um, because as I said, it might not be completely imaginal, that's fine. Um... And also, as mentioned, it might be that they're just spontaneous and improvised movements, gestures, vocalizations, or it might be they're quite rehearsed and you you know precisely uh, what the body and voice are going to do beforehand. Okay, so try both ways. Okay, let's say, so those are the five with with the variations for for this one. Uh, what I'm calling exercise number three, or maybe exercise series number three, I don't know. Okay, There's a little bit more about the why. Um, as I said, especially that first one, what we're calling the thunderclap, and or the, what's it, thunder and lightning, um, this kind of ability to really gather the chitta, the intention, the soul, the mind, the body, the movement, the gesture, the voice, to gather it powerfully into one kind of coherent, congruent expression, gesture, movement, energy, is quite rare. And I have come to wonder recently whether it's even rarer in some Dharma circles. So I can... uh, and in, including our dharma circle, basically. 
It's the capacity to actually do that is seems quite rare. In different ways, a person um, avoids it, never manifests it, falls short of it, falls shy of it, prevents it, has a bit of it, but there's a sort of hollow bit in the middle, all kinds of possibilities. Um, many, many possibilities. So it's often um, that kind of coherence of um, body, mind, energy, and soul is often missing as a possibility. It's like the circuits are just not there, or they're cut, or they're missing. And um, what can happen when, if we call them, if we use it, if the, the circuits or that territory is missing, they're cut, um, is that um, certain kinds or certain range of images, then, for a soul-making practitioner who's interested in imaginal practice, certain kinds and ranges of images won't arise. Something is blocked in this in that those circuits or cut those circuits just aren't connected, and it limits what arises imaginally. Like we said before, if the eros logos dynamic is strong enough and um, and it's stronger, more powerful in its movement uh, than whatever the blocks are there or limits or whatever holding is there. Um, then an image can arise that actually breaks open or, or uh, uh, breaks open those walls, reconnects those circuits. A flame, uh, a spark jumps over, and in jumping over, connects uh, two two points, re- reignites, re um, makes available again, reconfigures that circuit. It comes from the power of the soul-making dynamic in in constellating an image, and that image does something. The power of the image, and and the image is allowed to do something, or has enough soul-making power in it to do something, and it reconstitutes, it reconfigures, it reforms that circuit, if we're going to use the language circuit. But oftentimes, as I said, that won't happen. And so this circuit is cut, that those particular circuits are cut, and certain kinds of images and a certain range of images just won't arise. They don't arise in practice. They can't because the circuit is cut. It's cut in relationship to, uh, well, kinds of things, but movement, gesture, voice, and energy body possibility, and um, self-view, and all, you know, there's all kinds of things in there. But then also then, um, there won't be soul-making in that direction. Because those images won't arise. So there won't be soul-making in formal practice, meditation practice in that direction, without those images, because the circuits are cut. But it also may well be the case that there won't be soul and soul-making in certain areas of one's life. There won't be the possibility of ensoulment of soul and soul-making in certain directions of duty and certain kinds of manifestation. 
And both these um, lacunae, both these gaps, both these impossibilities of either images to arise or of um, the impossibility of soul um, opening, traveling, moving, in manifesting in certain directions in one's life, all kinds of consequences come from that regarding um, one's psychology, one's whole psyche, regarding the heart, regarding relationships with others, regarding um, one's duties, so to speak, in, in, in life, and soul duties included, regarding possibilities for one's life, regarding work, regarding life choices that we make. And, and it may well be that we don't even realize that this is going on, or, for instance, why I'm making this choice and not that choice. I don't realize it's because this circuit is uh, blocked, or it's cut, it's not available. Therefore, the soul, uh, the soul making and the soul cannot move in that direction. And therefore, certain choices don't even occur to me, or I just make them, but I don't even know why I'm making this choice over that choice. So oftentimes... Um, this kind of thing is going on, but a person doesn't even realize. All kinds of consequences, said psychological, emotional, relational, in terms of work, in terms of life choices, duties, possibilities, etc. And some say, I hear about these exercises, but I don't know, uh, this or that, it's just not me, or it's not it's not relevant to me i don't know this thing i yeah i participated but i did it a few times but it just doesn't feel like it's not relevant or i don't know i'm just not interested it will seem that way but actually it's because the circuit is cut so it's actually it's some can be very hard to discern really what's going on here so all this is by way of saying careful if you have uh, resistance to some of these exercises. Resistances to some of these exercises. Um, which may, you know, it's probably very normal. And, of course, you're free to do whatever you want and pick up and put down and, you know, it's completely up to you. But I'm, I'm just, you know, inviting you to take care, meaning to have have a closer look. Have, have some questioning. There, have some, you know, real inquiry and rummaging around and wondering, and and in this case, it's really wondering about one's whole life and the whole patterns of one's life. It's not just run, wondering about how I felt in that moment when mm, my friend suggested let's do that exercise, and I was like, yeah, okay, but, um, or I listened and then I felt like um, it's all right. Um, just an invitation to really ponder. Is there something, uh, a much larger trajectory, absence of trajectory here, um, in one's life, patterning, limitation, blind spots, incapacities, impossibilities? Then, you know, you can do what you want, um, but just the invitation to take care and to really inquire into that. So, and if, you know, maybe you do this stuff maybe once or twice, and then you neglect again the question: Why? Why would you neglect this? And again, as a real, as a real question, as a, a genuine inquiry. 
and said, it's not that everyone needs to do all this, because some people may already have all that range available. If we just talk about these five we just talked about today, or and include, let's say, the ones we did yesterday, may already have all that range available. It's all available vividly and um, vitally and juicily and soulfully in image, in the energy body, in their physical body and voice and the manifestation there, available in their life. And some people, it's all it's all there. Like, I'm not really interested in spending my time doing that. And yeah, why would you need to? You don't need to. I don't need to practice the C major scale again, or I don't need to practice that particular technique again, because I've taken it as, you know, it's as developed as it's going to be. I can move on to developing other things. But just to know that if that's not the case, if all that range uh, is really not available, or not really available in, in the range of images, in the energy body, in the physical body, in the life, in the directions of one's life, in the expressions and manifestations of one's life, then um, there will be consequences most likely there will be consequences, there will be further consequences, and uh, those consequences will include limitations on soul-making in life. There will be consequences to neglecting, uh, not, not picking up, and just kind of giving, giving in to one's inertia without really uh, examining it and questioning it. So, for always the choice is, uh, must be yours. You must have that autonomy. But just a real, you know, you can hear, it's a strong encouragement to inquire and to question, really, do I really know what's going on for me here? And here uh, doesn't just mean here and now, it means in, in my life, in the patterns of my life, in the choices of my life, in the directions um, I end up taking and not taking. Some of these examples, we said, take, you know, two seconds or three seconds or less to do. But the the circuits they need may have been shut down or, you know, short-circuited or chopped or snipped or whatever for decades. Decades. So it can seem like the, the exercise is really not a big deal. It's this two-second thing. You know, but the the circuits that they need to do, or the circuits that are involved in these exercises, or that exercise in a way are trying to reinstigate, may have been shut down for decades. And therefore it may take, um, I don't know, repeated practice, certainly, maybe maybe a, a long time of repeated practice, I don't know, um, to be able to do these exercises well, to do them properly. Even that first one I was talking about, this sort of sudden, emphatic uh, thunderous gesture and movement and, and, and vocalization to really show up there congeal with force with all my soul force and power not held back embodied, fully embodied fully um, not congealed, that's the wrong word coalesced, congruent it may take a while to do them well, to do them properly to develop that, I don't know So, all this is not for the sake of self-empowerment. 
it's not for the sake of winning friends and influencing people. It's not for the sake of making you more attractive. It's not for the sake of making you more whole or more integrated. It's not for the sake of some kind of catharsis. Oh yeah, get my anger out or um, whatever it is. But it's primarily so that, as I said, if the soul wants to manifest in image, in energy body, in emotion, or in life and in duty in life, using these kinds of faces, expressing these kinds of theophanies, if that's what soul wants through you, through image, through energy body, through emotion, through life and duty, if that's what soul wants, it can. That's the primary purpose for these kinds of exercises. Secondarily, through that, I think, through doing these exercises and some of the ones we've done on other retreats as well and uh, some of the ones we did yesterday and, and uh, we'll go on to... It, it can also, as I said, begin to uh, awaken and ignite the possibility of sensing our everyday movement, gesture and uh, vocalizations of, of them being sensed with soul without them being in any way extraordinary. And this is part of sensing ourselves and sensing others with soul. Other aspects of the being, other aspects of life begin to be dimensionalized in that way, as we said. So, why this business about the assessment and the sort of exam situation, very uh, unusual in our, in our Dharma tradition, of course, uh, in other Dharma traditions, it, it's rare, but um, it does exist, absolutely, in other Buddhist Dharma tr- traditions, excuse me. Um, why, why would I include that if we were in a different situation, if we were actually on retreat and I was introducing this? Why? Because being seen and judged makes it usually, for most people, more challenging. Uh, one gets self-conscious. One holds back. All, all kinds of all kinds of uh, reasons. And sometimes one doesn't even know the reason. Um, but that's actually part of it. Because again, if we think about what the relationship here is between these exercises and the possible manifestations or duties, uh, work, whatever it is that soul will ask you to do, will want you to do. Those two, the manifestations of your duties, will be seen and judged in the world and by the world. And what happens then? What happens for uh, to our energy, to our voice, to our <clears throat> to our to our uh, expression through the body when we feel or know that we are being seen and judged in and by the world? So putting that piece in, the assessment, the sort of exam piece, uh, actually makes it more difficult usually and uh, more challenging. And that's actually part of it because that reflects, mimics the uh, actual situation that soul finds itself in, in life. Soul is in life. Um, 
emotions, and that's what we need to work with. And still, I, th- I think I still think, or I wonder if still, uh, it can be hard, not easy, to understand why, why, why these exercises, why, why are we introducing this? Um, so I've introduced it with a few people now, just a few. And sometimes some of the exchanges in trying to explain it, sometimes the person understands immediately, but actually it's often easier when I'm demonstrating something that they seem to understand immediately. But then often after that, they sort of forget and they veer off uh, in, into something else. Like they've, something's happened, they've, they've um, what's the word, they've, uh, the practice has diverted or they forget it. or So something that they understood instantaneously with me working one-on-one in a room with them and showing them something, and they, they just got it immediately um, through me sort of uh, giving giving example uh, with, with body, voice, and, and gesture. Um, and they seem to get it, and it's all fine. And then, then it just kind of veers off into something else. They, they've lost the understanding why, or they forget, or they drag in other kind of propensities or habits of view, etc., or what can happen is, uh, if I'm not demonstrating, it's actually very difficult for a person to, uh, it can be, it seems to me, uh, understand what, what it is that we're talking about or why this is important. Someone's even trying, you know, working with a person in a, with an energy body and voice and um, can feel very alien, or they're not really sure what we're getting at, or they can't really tell the difference in two, say, movements or or vocalizations they made. They can't really even tell the difference between them in in the regard of uh, what we're talking about, how much one is there, how much it's radiating and filling a space, these kinds of things. Or sometimes I might suggest, why don't you, to a person, when you learn to um, sing that song, and sing it in 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 a way you know with the full um, energy and and really with the whole body like we were talking about yes in yesterday's exercises and with the whole um, uh, presence there and being and person coming through and not held back in the voice and the body and all of that stuff and um, remember with, with one person sort of su- suggesting. Uh, first time I suggested the ideas of saying, you know, choose something like, you know, like I don't know, a heavy metal song or a or a punk song, or something. And that was a mis uh, a misdirection in terms of the teaching I gave. So it can be that genre, but actually the singer, if we're talking about singers, is actually they're quite held back and contracted, and they're not really um, fully in their voice or fully uh, their body is not really expressing things, and it might. At a superficial glance, so I said it's actually quite hard to even discern it. It seems um, to discern it in other people. It might look like, well, the guy's raging around and jumping about on stage, and he's clearly very angry about something or other. But actually, there's a tremendous amount of contraction and block there, and something's almost the voice is almost being squeezed out <clears throat> through a tiny little, uh, a, a tiny little hole, almost. Um, or say this song and that song and we don't recognize where um, this singer is actually fully let's say in in not holding back in their voice they're fully inhabiting their voice and their energy 
is fully inhabiting the space that they're in and fully reaching the audience and the and the the physical space that they're in, and their whole body is involved, and their whole body is emanating, radiating the sound and the song and the spirit of the song, etc. And other times, and it can be hard for someone to, to uh, realize when that's the case and when it's not the case. They're both two songs, it's like good songs, they're both good singers, etc. We're talking about something else here. Or, as I said, uh, might be try this with people and they just didn't, yeah, I don't know, that just didn't land, it just doesn't seem, I don't think that's relevant to me, it might be for other people, I don't think it's relevant to me, or I don't think I need that, um, or, yeah, I don't know, it just doesn't interest me, so that's also um, something that I've encountered, um, in exactly uh, the p- people that I would really disagree with their assessment there, it's, it's precisely uh, a small but absolutely indispensable piece that they don't have yet, that's very relevant, that they do need, um, and that they should be interested in, would be my my opinion. So it's really interesting what can happen here um, in terms of the whole sense and view of this whole area. It can just completely, uh, you know, pass one's by, like pass one by as if we don't, we just don't recognize there's anything of significance or value or personal relevance here at all. Or for other people it can be um, just the, the, the whole thing, and I think this was the case when we did um, those exercises in that um, retreat, which admittedly were, some of them were quite intense, um, and some of them were comical, and the person can be... Uh, was it the, yeah, it was the voice movement and possibly so I think um, and uh, you know I think for a couple of people it's just so alien that the, that those kinds of ranges of vocalization or expression or manifestation of body or gesture just really unusual for them and not at all what they associate with spirituality or dharma or anything like that now they might not even say that perhaps out of respect, etc., but um, uh, but but it's there. And it just doesn't fit a kind of picture or idea or view that they have. And, and, and it's very, very alien. Um, so, to me, this is not just the doing of it, but also the whole the whole sense of it and the whole capacity to discern both its significance but also um, its presence or its absence, as we were just talking about the first of these five exercises, uh, we could talk about any of them, is um, something that can be strikingly undeveloped for practitioners who in other ways may be very well developed. Very well developed. Um... So I find that really, really interesting. Um, you know, sometimes, again, I'm still in the why, really, aspects of the why. Sometimes I'm working with someone um, in an interview, one-to-one or whatever, and it might be there's an emotion or a dukkha or a frustration or something that's there that they, they've, that they've brought in. Um, maybe they weren't even aware of it when they came in, maybe they were aware of it, it doesn't matter. This emerges, this this emotion, this dukkha, this frustration. 
And with guidance, with the one-to-one guidance, um, it, they can, uh, you know, they help to relate to that emotion, dukkha, frustration, um, so that it kind of uh, opens something and creates something and instigates something in the energy body, and maybe as an image, and and maybe. Maybe both, maybe in any order, maybe the image comes first, and then the energy body experience, or vice versa. And here's this um, difficulty, and then with the guidance, um, and the kind of crucibilic um, uh, care that's there, um, something emerges, or it transforms it, the, the alchemy there allows something to transubstantiate, really, in in manifest in the energy body as image. And that manifestation in energy body and or as image um, opens up in that moment a whole new sense of self and uh, also sense of the body. Um, so I've given different examples of that over the years in talks. Um, that's quite, that would be quite a common occurrence. Uh, but Often, then, um, what happens is uh, that sense of that new sense of self and open sense of body or whatever capacity, etc., um, will revert back to the usual shapes and structures. And oftentimes, that reversion happens after not not very long at all. So that's also, I mean, sometimes not, but that's also uh, quite common. Um, when it happens, it's quite a dramatic experience. The sense of something alchemically emerging in the energy body and the image and the beauty and the sort of power of the image and the, the, the soul being touched by the image and the new sense of self. And even more, it's all like, wow. Um, but the purpose here in these exercises is not so much the, the wow and the dramatic experience. So what we have in those in those uh, examples from interviews, etc., is a kind of dramatic, usually a dramatic um, emergence of something that does kind of, you know, very understandably uh, trigger a kind of wow response, and is a, is a is a dramatic, uh, you know, compelling experience. Um, but this is not what we're aiming for here. It's more like, as I said, it's more like we're talking about etudes, or, or even less than etudes. It's certainly in these first three exercises, they're more like just scales, or um, technical exercises. You know, they're not necessarily going to feel amazing. They probably won't. I mean, they might do actually. So you really don't want to limit things. But the point is to, to view more as scales and and uh, technical exercises. Um, so. On that point, and again, thinking about pedagogy in a larger way, you know, if you were to ask me, um, looking back over my Dharma practice and retreats and um, all that, if you were to ask me about uh, dramatic experiences and dramatic openings, etc., uh, that I've had over the years, I could you know, describe many, I'm sure, but... Um, 
you know, yeah. I could say, oh, that happened in this situation, that other thing happened in that situation, whatever it is. Um, so I could tell you about dramatic experiences and dramatic openings. But if you ask me uh, another question, what has made really long-term differences in terms of long-term openings or long-term um, being helpful long-term, the answer would not necessarily be the same as dramatic experiences. Think about, I think about, for example, different, let's say, week or ten-day retreats that I've done. And there have been a number where I could say, oh yes, it was on that week retreat where I had that experience, that was pretty amazing, and on that other week retreat, that, that dramatic experience happened, etc. But the answer to the second question about what made long-term differences would not be the same, said. Actually, what seems to have made long-term differences, if I'm answering this question just for myself now, is the possibility, or when I have been able to repeat something, repeat a practice, do it over and over again, um, a, a practice on attack that's helpful, relevant, but also um, has some eros for me, that's alive for me, that's um, growthful, and that's an edge and that therefore is interesting and, and, and exciting. And I've been in a situation, either because I'm on personal retreat and I don't have to listen to everyday new instructions or whatever it is from the teacher and go along with the group, I've been on personal retreat and just follow my own thread there and, and develop this thing, develop this practice that I'm exploring or discovering or whatever it is. Or... So either on personal retreat or in everyday life, just every day, getting on a getting on a track of something that I'm really interested in and develop, repeating it, developing it, growing with it. So that would be more my answer to what has made what has really made uh, you know genuine long term difference in helpful ways, different kinds of helpful ways. So the answers to what what has been amazing, dramatic, wow experiences. How much does it overlap with my answer to what has really made long-term, genuine, genuinely helpful differences? If I asked you the same question, what would you think? What would you answer? And, and careful not to confuse the wow factor, the feel-good factor, the dramatic factor, with what makes a long-term difference. That may be something you want to reflect on. Of course, you might have a different answer, but it may be something you want to reflect on. I've been on other retreats, you know, I remember, um, I remember going on some Goenka retreats and getting a lift back with a group of people in a big... Um, big truck, what van, whatever, and uh, they were all talking, and we were talking and listening, and, and um, a lot of them, it seemed, had come from backgrounds where they were really kind of, I don't know what the word would be, like they, they partied hard, you know, and they had a very little discipline in their lives, and some of them had addiction issues, and uh, at least that's, that's what, how they would put it, and, um, and then... And then they came on a Goenka retreat, and it's suddenly like in almost like a, a being thrown into a high discipline prison uh, sort of structure, 
um, compared to their life, where there was no discipline. Sit, sit, sit. They don't even walk, just sit, sit, sit. Um, sit through the pain again, 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 many hours a day, etc. And for quite a few of these people, it seemed that um, doing this uh, 10-day ultra-disciplined uh, Goenka course for them um, really did kind of dramatically break the momentum of the, the, the unhelpful patterns in their life. Like the lack of discipline in their life and the whatever else, the really you know, hard partying and, and whatever. The bit thrown into that context of the Goenka retreat with all this discipline and the pressure of that and the intensity of that and the sort of, um, what's the word, the, the kind of continuity of intense effort, etc. there, um, made a dramatic break. And after the retreat, it was enough that dramatic break could could generate a kind of momentum um, for their everyday practice and life um, to be changed, to, to kind of um, keep up a discipline and good habits that they felt they had lacked, etc. So it may well be then, in, in those kinds of cases, that drama and uh, dr- the dramatic wow experience, um, even if it's dramatic, unpleasant, but oftentimes there would be a break in the retreat and things would get a lot easier and pleasant if you know those kinds of retreats sometimes. Um, but either way, um, some dramatic experience did allow and did support a more long-term, uh, long-term helpful change and life changes as well. But in other, let's say, styles or emphases of practice, is it going to be the same? So, for example, soul-making now is a very different flavor of retreat. The whole tenor of the retreat, the whole atmosphere, what we're doing, how we're doing it, uh, the the flavor of softness as opposed to intense pressure and effort and hard, all, all these kinds of things. But particularly what we're doing and and how we're going about it, it's not the same. So it may not apply the fact that you go somewhere, you have an amazing experience. It was so beautiful, this experience on that seven-day soul-making retreat or whatever. Or it could be another kind of retreat. It was a meta retreat or this or that. It was so beautiful. The heart was so open or just a Vipassana retreat. And um, there's something that touches one deep. Of course, that's important. That's lovely. But that doesn't necessarily translate as making a long-term difference. So there's something to think about. And there's something for us to think about as we go forward as a Sangha with soul-making. Again, pedagogically, uh, or with regard to uh, pedagogy to think about here. You know, is it necessary that this model of week, week-long group retreats is really the most fertile, the most, the most soul-making in the end? Beautiful as the experience of that week can be, or the ex- some of the experiences on that week can be, and touching. Might it be that something more... Um, steady courses, classes, groups, etc., actually provide um, more support, but a different kind of support and a necessary kind of support for making a real, more long-term difference 
in terms of soul and soul making, what soul needs. So, that's something to think about. I don't know, just thinking about it. But really, again, with these exercises, to think of them more as technical exercises, like doing your scale, like practicing scales, as opposed to something that's going to create a suddenly I had this amazing, amazing experience because this image came or this uh, something. I mean, it might be, but that's not the point so much, and that's certainly not how to judge them. That's not the way we should be judging them. It's something like practicing scales, or to shift the analogy from the um, the musician to the instrument. It's something like I don't know if you had a this is not such a good analogy, but if you had a, if you had a piano where let's say these keys here uh, get stuck if they don't get played a lot, they just get stuck, so they end up being you end up pressing them if they haven't and 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 it makes no sound. Then you go and you're trying and playing to play play or improvise something or play your piano piece or whatever, and you reach that note and nothing comes out because the key is just stuck. This is a very bad analogy. But maybe if uh, if every day it had been played more and, and to kind of uh, wouldn't have, you know, you can free those keys up so they don't get stuck, then they're available for the music. But what we're really talking about, again, is what soul might need. So yes, there's um, some what we could call psychological health reasons why these exercises are are a good idea or might be a good idea for some people in some stages of their life. But even those psychological health reasons, we can uh, conceive them as being, if you like, on a continuum with soul reasons. The soul might need that kind of psychological health. The soul, as I said, might need for those circuits to be connected and working and available in movement, in gesture, in body, in voice. And as I said, there's consequences, or there may be consequences, let's put it that way, there may be consequences, all kinds of consequences, which I think are not necessarily obvious at all. Um... So, you know, sometimes what can happen is um, we don't let, or another way of saying uh, what we've been talking about is we don't let um, certain kinds of body movement or expression or uh, expressions of voice, manifestations of voice, we don't let that in to the body, into the possibilities of, of movement, gesture, voice. Um, and it might be certain, I don't use that word dark, it can mean so many different things, but some of the kind of um, examples been given in this, in this exercise, in exercise number three, that those kinds of darker um, faces and expressions, again, that doesn't have anything to do with evil, I'm not using that word, those words synonymously at all. But they're not let into the body. The body is not open to that. The, the expression, the voice, the gesture and the movement are not open to that. Sometimes uh, those kinds of things may come as images for a person, but it may not be enough. It may not be enough. Uh, it may be that they're 
uh, soul wants more images like that, or a fuller range, or more uh, depth to images like that, and we're only getting a trickle of what could come through. Or it may be just that just the fact of having images alone is not enough, and I'll come back to that. And it may even be that in blocking blocking the dark images, somehow there there's also a kind of blocking of more, if you like, more light images. More kind of uh, conventionally or traditionally angelic kind of images. And that's not obvious at all. It's because I'm not letting this dark into the body that actually then in my imaginal practice there's also a block of a certain kind of range of light images. We want the whole range of images. Soul wants the whole range of images to be available. And uh, remember that talk, I hope you remember it, five, The Spreading of Five Wings, I think it's called. Again, this very much has to do with inertia and limits and blocks and ideas and um, uh, stuck places and contractions. Five kinds of range that we want to check that we're open to. The spreading of five wings, I think it was called. We want the whole range of images. Soul wants the whole palette to be available for its art. And it wants that, not just in imaginal practice, but also um, in the body and in the voice, in the expressions of, of body and voice, movement, gesture, etc. So there's consequences. Consequences for our formal practice, consequences for our life, consequences for what soul can do. There may be other consequences as well. You know, it might be that for example, in not letting some of the kinds of movement, gesture, and voice that we've uh, pointed to in, in the exercises today, in exercise number three, it may be that that also affects the, for example, the how we are with anger. So it might be that in not opening up the circuits in the body and the voice in in these ways. Uh, that actually affects the, the mind in terms of anger. And a kind of anger that's possible then doesn't have body and voice in it. It might also not have a range of images, as we said, in it. It has a very narrow range. And in that, it might be a couple of things. It might be then that the mind gets into quite black and white thinking and viewing. And that's something that often goes with anger. When anger is not so healthy, it gets very black and white. The thinking and the viewing. But there may well be a relationship between the prevention, the absence, the block the non-existence of those circuits of movement, gesture, and voice, and the entrenchment and habit of black and white thinking and viewing. Even when things are rosy and we think something's wonderful. And that's just all taken as the truth. It really is this way. This person really is that way. We never think, what's the connection? And I think there's a connection between what we allow uh, to move through and to open through 
an open in and as movement gesture voice, what's available there. There's a connection between that and something like the kind of black and white thinking and viewing that's really not helpful. Certainly not when there's anger, but also when there's a kind of positive assessment of something. It's Even if you're praising someone, they might end up feeling a little bit put in a box that they don't feel comfortable with. Even if you're saying this or that about them or about something they've done. But actually, it's... Uh, it's black and white. It's something entrenched. And something... This is connected with the second aspect I wanted to um, draw, draw uh, a link to. Because something can be brittle here. Without letting things... Um, without opening up the movement gesture voice in, in these kinds of ways. Something can... And not just black and white in our thinking, viewing, when we're angry or when there's positivity, but also then brittle. And again, if we're, if we're talking about anger, the anger can be merely cold anger, and that's all that's available to me, as opposed to a, a hot, juicy uh, anger. Cold anger is not far from hatred in certain ways of using those words. But cold anger is also kind of brittle. And again, there's a kind of brittleness that can come into the being um, through, again, th- just through the non-availability of some of these circuits with regard to body and voice. The anger can be brittle and, and not have depth to it, not have juice, not have... Um, I don't know, I'm thinking of a, a spicy, juicy curry sauce. It doesn't have that in it. There's something cold and brittle in it. And then being brittle, it easily shatters. And something shatters in the being, not in a helpful way. And something shatters in the anger, in what we're trying to stand up against or for, what we're trying to express and the point we're trying to make, whatever, something shatters and there's a collapse. A collapse in the being. Uh, and there's no strength there. So the collapse, because of the shattering, because of the brittleness, because of the non-availability of these areas and circuits and directions and possibilities in movement, gesture and voice. The connection with all that, with black and white thinking, black and white viewing. So this is not, I think, obvious at first. Again, I would say in some cases, I think it's, I think it's uh, significant and important to be investigated. I certainly wouldn't insist this is the only way things work or it works like this for everyone, not at all, but to be investigated. This is the kind of thing we would never think to connect these, uh, these aspects. So there's a relationship here to everything that we're talking about. There is a relationship to the question which I brought up, I think, several times, but recently, gosh, now I can't remember, it might have been in the talk about pain on um, in Psyche's Orchard. But anyway, somewhere, uh, a few places in the last while, I brought up this question, I have at least, about, about for example, ritual. Um, and when is it necessary? We have this question in relation to the energy body and movement. You know, we've had it um, before, long before. The question is about ritual. When is it necessary 
for, let's say, an image of ritual to be manifested and concretized in an actual ritual. So this whole question about movement, gesture, body, movement, gesture, voice, vocalization, is connected with that. When is it necessary for an image to be manifested, concretized as uh, as an image, or if it's a you know image of dancing or moving or whatever it is to be manifest that way? And then we can break that question down into two kind of um, temporal levels, if you like. So one is, when is it necessary for the sense and the possibility of soul-making in the moment? Do I um, open up more of a sense of soul-making right now by actually concretizing a ritual gesture, manifesting it, or a movement in the body that's connected with the image? Or do I get more soul-making? Does more soul-making open if I don't, and I just let it brew in the image and in the energy body and in the soul resonances? And uh, um, the physical body remains still. But then there's a second temporal level. What about the um, possibility of soul-making in one's life more long-term? So this, what is necessary to, if you like, open up, support the most soul-making right now, in this moment? And then what about in one's life and more long-term? Enactment, concretization, manifestation, or not? And, and it can work both ways. So it's not like there's one answer to this. It's, complex. it's a question. It's a living question. It's a, again, back to the question of subtle soul discernment, receptivity, openness of being, inertia. So two temporalities to concern ourselves with. If we're talking about, let's, let's take the example, that this image comes. And, and right now, with this image... Um, what is it that um, allows it to become more soul-making? Is it moving the body, or is it being still? Is it um, concretizing or not? And then the second, what is it um, that allows that image to um, engender and open and uh, instigate more, you know, the fullness or a, a, a fuller soul-making in my life over the long term. So may not need um, concretization or expression, uh, a reflection of the image in body or voice, but... Um, but it will at least need a kind of refraction into duty. The image needs to be refracted somehow into duty. And what will that need? And what will that need from movement, gesture, voice? And are they available for that? Are they open? Are the circuits working? So there's lots of uh, discernments, lots of questions here. 
And you know, sometimes the soul uh, may want to express um, itself through movement, gesture, voice, but um, those are blocked. And they're blocked so much, this relates to what I said earlier, that a person doesn't even feel the want. Those circuits are so uh, cut. There's such an absence of electric flow there, if we use that analogy, that they don't even feel the soul wanting to express in that way, through movement, gesture, voice. So maybe that if some of these exercises re-establish the circuits, reconnect those circuits, um, uh, then we have uh, an actual choice. Listening is possible. We will recognize a want. And then we can choose whether we can discern what's right and how, etc. Sometimes something is so cut that we don't even feel the soul's want. If the circuit is alive, we're more likely to be able to feel the soul want, the soul's want, if there is one. And then we can make the choice. And then we can uh, listen better. So sometimes, um, <clears throat> in all these kinds of openings, you know, it's normal for a human being to have blocks, to have limits, to have areas of soul that are just not, not in soul yet, not alive yet, to have areas of unconsciousness. All this is very, very normal. Are areas of limitation, areas where there's just barred entry, all that. It's very, very normal. So please understand that in context as well. And sometimes what happens um, uh, is the angels come, the demons come, an image come, imaginal figures come, and help you, help me, with uh, something that is not, uh, that is a difficulty for me, that hasn't been alive, that's been an impossibility. So, it could be exactly these kinds of uh, ranges of movement, gesture, voice that we've been talking about, these kinds of expression. The angels come and they help, and imaginal, an image comes, an imaginal figure comes, and so from the power of the image, given with the image, and through the way of relating to the image, I, I am helped to re, revitalize, open, and travel in that area of being an area of life. Um, it may be other issues. It may be, you know, in the Ridwan school, Catherine was telling me they have this uh, thing, they, I think they call it impeccability. And what they really mean is just the capability and the capacity to really be steady and grounded and consistent and follow through with your plans um, or what you said, you know, honor your word. If you said you would do this, you to really do it. I think it's called impeccability. It's like one of their little areas. 
answer may be. For instance, that's not really there, or in some areas that's not there. And it's the uh, we are helped by the visitations of the angels and the demons and the ministrations of the angels and the demons and the encouragement and the prodding and sometimes the tough love of the angels, the demons, the imaginal figures. And then we're able, that area um, is then open to us, it comes alive, we're able to travel in that landscape, that territory, that soul territory, both in imaginal practice and in life. Or as it might be, be this, this, the range of bodily vocal openings and expressions that we're talking about in these talks. And then, and then they become available. We can use them, and that's great. And it was from the, the grace of the angel, in a way. Also, of course, needs me to, as always, needs me to relate, to assent, and to relate in certain ways that allow that image to become genuinely imaginal so that it has its full soul power. So sometimes things work that way around from the angel, so to speak, by the grace of the angel, still needing our work. But other times it's um, the exercises themselves which will support soul-making at the two temporal levels that we we talked about. So the, the, um, the exercises will open the possibility of images that are impermanent, but that come and that feel... Um, and are soul-making and soulful in that in that time that they're around, and maybe whenever they visit after that. But these exercises may also support with the longer term, longer arc of manifestation and opening of soul in one's life. The refraction of the daemon, daemons in one's life, the duty to the images in one's life the human being living one's image. The capacity of the person to live one's image, to really live one's image, to embody it, to manifest, to refract. So sometimes we're helped by the angels, and the angels open the territory, the angels reconnect the circuits. And sometimes we have to do this kind of more exercise work, and that opens the circuits, and then uh, they're open for the angels. Our practice and our life is open for soul, for the images, for the angels, and for our human refracting of daemon, of angel, for our expressions and manifestations of soul. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.